Dr. A.J. Swoboda as our chapel speaker this morning. Um, A.J. was with us on Monday, and many of you, I'm sure, were here and, and heard um, his message for us, and we, we, get, to, we get to hear uh, again today from A.J. Uh, A.J. Swoboda is, uh, is a theology and Bible professor um, at Bushnell University, and uh, he's uh, a podcaster. His podcast is called In Faith and Doubt. Uh, I would encourage you to check that out. Um, the author of many, many books, um, his latest book is called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Um, really good stuff. He and his family live and work in uh, Eugene, Oregon. And uh, would you join me in, in giving a Northwestern welcome again to the stage, AJ Swoboda. Awesome. Love it. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Grace and peace. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. For those that were here on Monday and are back, thank you for entrusting me with one more required chapel. And for those that were not here on Monday and are here today, thank you for entrusting me with one of your required chapels. It's a joy to be with you today. Uh, Before we're done today, I want to tell you just a little bit about tomatoes. But before we get to that, let's read the Bible. We were reading on Monday, uh, John chapter 20. Uh, For those that weren't here, I'm going to kind of do a brief recap. Let's read the text again together. It's a story of a guy named Thomas, who's one of the disciples. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And again, the context of this uh, little story that we're going to read today uh, is that Jesus uh, has lived for three years uh, as a itinerant uh, mess, Messiah. He'd been teaching and preaching. Uh, Jesus, of course, was thir- 33 years old when he died on a Roman cross. But for thir- th- 30 years, he lived basically an obscure, quiet childhood. We know almost nothing from his childhood experiences, barring uh, one uh, couple stories from his birth, and then one really interesting story from his teenage years when he gets lo- lost in the temple and his parents forget about him. That's a different story. We'll talk about that at a different point. Uh, but for three years, Jesus does miracles, ministry, he teaches, he he radically transforms the world. And there were these 12 disciples, uh, the Greek word for a disciple is a mathetes, a learner, who had been following the way of Jesus and essentially taking upon themselves the way of Jesus. And as Jesus uh, dies on a Friday on a Roman cross, eventually resurrects on a Sunday, we have this period of 40 days where Jesus essentially walks around and shows off his resurrection body, his resurrection state. And in one of those appearances, he shows up to the disciples, but Thomas, one of the 12, wasn't there. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. He came, he showed up, we've seen him. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. And so Thomas is struggling to believe. He's, we would call this doubt. Uh, Some people call him Doubting Thomas. That's not referenced at all in the Bible. I would encourage you to not call him that. But he is a disciple who is doubting. Let's go to the next screen. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And by the way, there's a lot of really interesting overlap between uh, the story of Jesus' crucifixion and the story of the the Garden of Gethsemane, excuse me, the Garden in in Genesis 1 and 2. You may remember in the Garden of Eden, it was out of the man's side that God created the first bride. 
And it is now out of the side of Christ on the cross that Christ will create a new bride, the church. And so it's out of his side, right, that he had been stabbed and water flowed, as it were, from the rock, Jesus. And he says, touch my side. And then Jesus says, stop doubting Thomas and believe. And so Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, because you've seen me, you've been, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And what we talked about on Monday is this idea that, that if, if you're on the way of Jesus, if you're following the way of Jesus, there's likely going to be a moment in your life when you may walk through something quite like this. It may look different, the details may be different, but you may walk through, very possible, you may walk through a moment in life where you struggle to believe the way of Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and you struggle and wrestle with what we call doubt. We, we talked about on Monday this idea of the theological journey. Go to the next slide if you would. This idea that over the lifetime, right, we all grow in our knowledge of God, and we go through seasons. We go through moments of like, uh, moments where our, our faith is strong and moments where we like believe with all of our heart, but we also go through moments where we really struggle to believe. I love reading the Psalms. For example, Psalm 22 reflects this. It's one of my, uh, my favorite Psalms. Uh, it's David, right? He's crying out to God. It's that famous song where he's, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's actually the very Psalm that Jesus is going to say from the cross. Jesus is going to quote a Psalm he would have learned as a child that David had written. But when you read Psalm 22, it's really funny because David, he goes between like, God, you're awesome and I love you and I believe in you and you're wonderful. And then like the next line is like, but I'm a dog. I'm a worm, God. I don't even know what I'm doing. And then the next line, he's like, but you're awesome. I love you, God. You, you gave me life. And then the next line is like, why am I alive? What am I doing? Feel like your spiritual life? And I love, too, at the very end of the Psalms, very often there will be this really interesting thing that happens where the psalmist will, like, they'll be really honest with God. Uh, they'll be really honest, honest with God. They'll just tell God everything that they're really feeling. The Psalms are a beautiful invitation to truthfulness uh, before God. In fact, when you pray, just, just remember this. There has never been a point in human history where you have ever been honest with God or prayed to God and God, after a conversation with you, was more informed about the situation. God has never heard your prayer and then afterwards he's like, oh, it's interesting. I, I'd never thought of it that way. Like, he knows what you pray before you pray it. And that's what's awesome, is you get to be totally honest with God. You get to totally be honest with God. He knows what's already going on. But by the end of the psalm, there's often this thing where the psalmist, they'll like tell God all this truth. They'll be like, God, I don't know what's going on. The cows of Bashan, they're encircling me. I'm a worm. The Amalekites, they're trying to eat my family. And then the very end, the psalmist will say, but I praise you, God. You are good. And, and Old Testament scholars have a word for that. It's called anticipatory praise. And it's the idea that we don't praise God when, when the hard times have passed. We actually choose to worship and praise God in the middle of our hard times. We praise God in anticipation of his deliverance. The theological journey is a little bit like the Psalms. At moments, it's like, God, I have total faith in you. I love you. But then the next moment is like, God, what are you, what are you doing with my life? 
God, I'm so grateful that I'm at this school. I'm grateful that you brought me here. Lord, how am I going to pay off my debt? (laughs) Felt these pressures? Welcome to the way of Jesus. It's a theological journey. And I introduced you to a guy named Phil. And I told you the story of Phil. Phil was a young man who had moved to Portland and through a period of about six years, Phil, uh, who had moved from middle America, had uh, totally uh, deconstructed his faith and walked away essentially from the way of Jesus for a season of time. Now I told you, I changed some of the details of Phil's life for the sake of posterity, but I actually want to introduce you to the real Phil. The real Phil. Show the picture if you would. Um, This is the real Phil. Um, on, the, on your left is a beautiful, stoutly young man by the name of me. Uh, next to uh, 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 the me uh, <laughs> is, is a very sweet and kindly uh, woman. That's my wife, Quinn. And then next to her is a young woman named Faith. And on the far right, you see that little stud guy that is going to take the world over? That's my dude. That's my guy. That's my son. That's my son, Elliot. He's the coolest dude you'll ever meet. But right next to him is Phil. And I snapped this photo about six months ago. Phil came to church uh, with me and my family uh, up from Portland, uh, down from Portland for a weekend. And uh, Phil, uh, who had gone through this journey of doubt and deconstruction, now today is walking with Jesus with such passion and vigor. He's graduated with a philosophy degree. He wants to be a philosopher for Jesus. He's walking with God. He's leading his friends to Jesus. And what you don't see in this picture, what you don't see in this picture, this young man who had deconstructed, walked away from his faith, doubted everything, walked away, what you don't see in this picture are the thousands of dollars of coffee I invested in relationship with that guy. The number of hours and pounds and gallons and tonnage of coffee and 3 a.m. phone calls and anger, angry voice messages. What do we do about this? That go behind the footnotes of that story that you'll never see. And I show this picture to say this. I show this picture to say this to you. If you think going through doubt and walking through deconstruction is the end of following Jesus, I want to say to you, look at that picture. You're wrong. Because true disciples of Jesus, from moments and moments in time, go through moments of struggle and doubt, and they come out the other side, and they love God more because of it. That is a miracle right there. That is a miracle right there. But I want to ask this morning how it happened. How is it possible that Phil could have that story, raised in the church, deconstructs everything, and then walks with Jesus? How in the world does that happen? And I made a point that there are three movements in the story of Thomas. Three movements in the story of Thomas. The first movement is this. Thomas, first, he followed Jesus. He had the experiences with Jesus. He saw the miracles. He saw the teaching. He saw it all. Secondly, Thomas goes through the doubt experience. He walks through that. But then thirdly, Thomas comes back to Jesus. He returns. To be more technical, to be more biblically accurate, Jesus actually returns to Thomas. But we'll see that in just a second. How in the world did Phil walk through his experience of doubt? And I want to ask this morning for you, how can you walk through your experiences of doubt and do it faithfully with God? Go back to the text, the one with the underlined stuff. I want you to see a few things. There's some details. The, The author of this text, John, 
uh, is a brilliant storyteller. He's a brilliant storyteller. I love, by the way, John never in his gospel tells us that he himself wrote the gospel. It's one of those gospels that's anonymous. He never says, I, John, have written it. What's interesting about John's gospel uh, is he tells us his nickname. He never tells us his name. He says his nickname. He always calls himself in the gospel of John. He calls himself the one who Jesus loves. He's kind of, kind of arrogant, actually, when you think about it. He's like, well, I'm the, I'm the one who Jesus loves, you know. Uh, my son, who's a, a miracle, we were not supposed to be able to have kids, uh, and we, we had Elliot. He, he's an absolute miracle. Uh, we had a long infertility story, and he's a total miracle. The problem with my son is how much he knows he's a miracle. <laughs> I, he is hyper aware of his miraculous nature. When you read Thomas, when you read John's story, it's really funny, because he only knows himself through the lens of being loved by God. He's the one who Jesus loves. Could you just imagine? That's actually what being a Christian is all about, is waking up every day and just knowing your identity. I'm the one who Jesus loves. I do find it really interesting that none of the other gospels ever give him that nickname. As if to say, we called him all sorts of things, but that wasn't what we called him. Look at the way John tells his story. It's brilliant. He says first, so when Thomas goes through this doubt first, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, put, do the calendar work here. The first time Jesus shows up, Thomas isn't in the room. But Jesus shows up a second time. And you see the text here. How long does Jesus wait to show up a second time? We're here, right? Good morning. Hello. How long has it been? A week. Good job, Bible exegetes. A week. A week. Jesus waits a week to come back and show his scars to Thomas. There is no sense, when you read the commentaries on this text, there's no sense whatsoever that Jesus is at all worried or freaked out that one of the disciples is walking through doubt. You don't get the sense that Jesus is like sitting around, he hears that Thomas is struggling with doubt and Jesus is just like biting his nails, like, oh my goodness, one of my, one of my disciples is struggling to believe in the resurrected me. He's not freaking out. He waits a week, a week. He doesn't rush, he doesn't hurry off. And actually what's interesting about this, is that this is common for Jesus. If Jesus, <laughs> people are always wanting Jesus to come do something. Hey Jesus, would you come over here? Do miracles in our town. Jesus, would you come over here? That whole thing you did with the loaves and the fishes, could you do that in my town? Jesus, would you come over here and do some miracles? And it's really interesting how many times in the gospels Jesus says no. It's like, no, I'm not coming there. I'm going there. But if you came to my town, yeah, I'm not going there. I gotta go here. I'm called to these people for now. And, and in addition to that, how Jesus often, he doesn't rush. In fact, in the story of Lazarus, his friend, who, who is sick, he, Jesus finds out that his Lazarus friend is sick, who's eventually, by the way, going to die. He waits, Jesus, he finds out Lazarus is sick. He waits three days before he even packs his bags and, and starts walking there. And eventually when he does get there, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they're super mad at him. They're like, Jesus, had you showed up faster, he wouldn't have died. People are always wanting Jesus to rush. 
But Jesus does not set his timetable to our demands or adrenal glands. He sets his timetable to the Father. He waits a week. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you ever walk through a season of doubt or struggle, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to feel like a week. It's going to feel like forever. And I want to suggest to you that it's God's plan. You see, we do this, I've just noticed this. I just, I think I know our culture pretty well. I, I don't know pretty well. I don't know Minnesota very well. I know the Pacific Northwest really well. And I can say that we do this thing where when we get a question about God, right? We get a question about the Bible. We get a question about some big topic like sexuality or gender or politics. We have some really big topic and we're like, we, I've got a doubt. I'm struggling to believe. How do, God, how do I understand this? How do I make sense of this? It's not making sense to me. I'm struggling to believe. I, I've just noticed our tendency as Christians is to try to find the quick fix rather than be shaped by the question. And so what we do, you know, when I was 16 and met Jesus, uh, it was crazy. If I had a question about the Bible, or I had a question about scripture, I had a question about uh, the faith or philosophy, I had a question about the nature of God, we had to do this crazy thing. We had to do this crazy thing. This was, you know, back in 1999, uh, back in the, uh, the golden era of our world's history, the Bronze Age. We had to do this thing, it was crazy. If we had questions about God or the Bible, guess what we had to do? We had to like, this is crazy, I mean, this is insane. We had to like pray and like talk to each other. I know it's crazy, right? We'd have to like, I'd have to like go get my John MacArthur stutter Bible and read the notes down at the bottom and try to figure something out. I'd have to talk to my pastor. You'd have to struggle with it. I didn't have the internet. I couldn't go find a podcast. I couldn't go find some YouTube clip. Like, if you had a question in 1999, you had to struggle with the question. We got some excitement over here. <laughs> There's some people struggling over here. And you know what we do now? I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm, gonna, I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried for you. Because now, your generation, when you got a question, you got a problem, you got an issue, you know, you know what I'm worried about? You don't, you don't have to wait a week anymore for anything. You just, you just go find the podcast. You, you go find the, the Bible Project video. You go find your favorite pastor's sermon on the topic. You go, you go listen to Tim Keller. And I love, all these people are awesome, by the way. But you go and find the immediate thing to resolve the question. I'm going to tell you right now, there is somebody who pastors more people in America than you would ever believe. She is, you're not going to believe it. Siri pastors more people than you could ever imagine. I gotta be honest with you. I'm terrified that your generation does not embrace struggles of faith anymore as an opportunity to become deep people. You go to the immediate response. And I wanna suggest to you that wrestling with your questions before God makes you a really deep person.
But when you go for the immediate, you go for the quick, you go for the snappy, you go for the instant, when you go to that thing, it doesn't force your roots to go deep. My friend Alan Fadling wrote a book about hurry and rush. He's a brilliant thinker, and he says, you know, when they plant vineyards, when they plant grape plants, when they plant uh, grapevines, that the, the worst thing you can do for grape plants, I didn't know this, the worst thing you could do for a brand new vineyard is artificially water it from the top, because guess what? When you artificially water a grape plant from the top, guess what happens? The vines, uh, the, the roots of the vines, guess what they do? They stay at the surface. But if you don't artificially water the plants, guess what happens? The roots have to go deep to find water. Here's a problem, friends. Hey, you and I together, we're gonna hang out when this is all done. I'm digging you. We spend our life artificially watering our souls with podcasts and the internet and Instagram and TikTok. And I wanna say, it is keeping our souls from going deep. A week. What do you think that was like for Thomas? He had to wait a week. Jesus shows up and he says, put your fingers here. What's he talking about? Put your finger on my side. What's he talking about? He's talking about his scars. And it, it is intriguing to me that Jesus, when you read this parable, Thomas has got all these doubts. It is an, absolutely intriguing to me. When you look at Jesus' response, Jesus does not give Thomas one single answer. There's a guy named Conrad Gempf, who's a New Testament scholar at the London School of Theology, who I teach alongside uh, for a few classes uh, uh, at the London School of Theology. He's an incredible thing. He's a German scholar. He wrote a book called Jesus Asked, and it's a book about all the questions of Jesus. And it turns out Jesus, 183 times Jesus is asked a question in the New Testament, 183 times of 183 questions that Jesus is asked. He only answers three of them. You want to know why? Because it's really hard to give a good answer to a bad question. Jesus is always being asked questions to trap him. They don't want truth. They want to trap him. Look, look what happens here. Thomas does not get an answer. He gets something different. He gets something more important. He actually gets what you need when you're walking through doubt. He doesn't get an answer. Guess what he gets? He doesn't get an answer. He gets the presence of God. Now, by the way, by the way, okay, for those of you who are like, well, what about the answers? Aren't the answers important? The answers are totally important. They are totally important. But sometimes when we get the answers, here's what happens. We get the answers. Like the answers in the back of the book, we get the answers. And sometimes when we get the answers, we have more faith in the answers than we do in the one who gave us the answer. Sometimes our answers actually keep us from dependence on God. And he gets, what he gets is the body of Jesus, his scars. He gets his scars. Jesus lets him touch the scars. Why? Because the person who's walking through doubt, their true need, their true need is not an answer. Their need is that someone would be with them in the struggle. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of the, the world, the only way to God, our only hope, our restoration, our life, our peace, our salvation. When you walk through your struggle, he may not always give you the answer, but he will always give you his scars. You know what's crazy? Jesus resurrects and he ascends to heaven. Does he ascend to heaven with or without scars? Who said that? 
You get extra credit. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Guess what's on his body? The scars. Friends, when you meet Jesus face to face and he wipes the tears from your eyes, that is how you will know it is your Christ because only a God with scars truly knows how to love. He gives us his presence. Right now, if you're walking in a moment of struggle, doubt, you've got questions, you're ripping your faith apart, whatever it may be, I, I need you to know your questions are important and there are answers, don't get me wrong. But God, God is going to give you his presence above all things. Look at what Thomas does. Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And if you've been in a class on the nature of Jesus, Christology, you've had a Gospel of John class, you know exactly what's going on here. What is Thomas doing? He is worshiping Jesus. My Lord, my God, kurios, theos, you're my God, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. He sees who he is. This is God. If you ever have somebody who says, ah, Jesus, he's just a good teacher. He never claimed to be God. Read this. Thomas worships him, my Lord, my God, and Jesus never says, bro, you've taken it too far. Like, calm it down, man. I'm just a good teacher. He lets him worship him, and he lets him worship him because he is God. He's not a good teacher. He's the God of the universe. The answer to doubt is not an answer. The answer to doubt is a life of worship. God I give you my whole self, even with these unresolved questions. And then look at the end. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, in, 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 um, uh, in, in, in the movies, right, what is the moment when an actor breaks the rules and they look at the audience? What do they call it? Breaking the... Fourth wall. Fourth or third? Fourth, thank you. Look at what Jesus does here. He says, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believed. But look at what Jesus does. He breaks the fourth wall. And what does he do? He looks at you and he says, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Who's he talking to there? He's talking to you. He's saying, you may not have seen me, but you believe. Guess what? You're going to be blessed because of that. Now, at the end of this story, I don't know if you know what happens to Thomas at the end of the story, but at the end of the story, we hear nothing else about Thomas. Guess what Thomas does after this story? Thomas, church history tells us, Thomas, the doubter, goes to India and he founds a Christian community there. He is the first missionary to go to India. If you have ever met an Indian Christian with the last name Thomas, there's a reason why. I have three friends Indian Christians with the last name Thomas, whose descendants have been following Jesus for 2,000 years in India because Thomas the doubter went and was a missionary. And I say that to say this. We have got to stop seeing doubters as problems. Friends, there are future missionaries. And that when you make room for somebody that's wrestling with their faith, and you love them right where they're at, guess what you're doing? You're just preparing somebody to be a missionary. Does that make sense?
Let me tell you about tomatoes. So I live in Oregon. And in Oregon, it rains about 483 days a year. You have to like, you have to have a reason to live in Oregon. And I'm gonna tell you why I live in Oregon. Here's why I live in Oregon. Here's why I live in Oregon. These. Look at these right here. These are Oregon tomatoes. And here's the deal with Oregon tomatoes. It rains all year long, but the spring and the summer are absolutely mind-blowing. They're incredible. And here's why, because you can grow these. There is nothing like an Oregon tomato. I have never met somebody ever in history who has eaten an Oregon tomato and then afterwards continued to be an atheist. <laughs> you cannot eat these and tell me there's not a creator God. We grow these, they're absolutely incredible. And every summer we serve these tomatoes to people that come to our home. Every summer we serve them, and there is always somebody that comes to our house in the summer who doesn't like tomatoes. But I'll still serve the tomatoes. And they'll come to our house, and I'll say, hey, we got tomatoes. And they'll say, well, I don't like tomatoes. And I'll say, well, you're eating our tomatoes. And I'll put the tomatoes right in front of them, put a little salt, a little pepper. Okay, here's why. Here's why. I've noticed, it seems to me, there are a lot of people at our moment in history who are totally dissatisfied with religion, and they're walking away from religion right now. Tons of people. And I'm gonna to say to you today, the people who are walking away from religion, I, we assume that means they don't love God. And I want to suggest to you today something different. And that is this, in closing, when I serve these tomatoes to people, to people that hate tomatoes, and I put them in front of them, the person who hates tomatoes, and I serve them, and they eat my tomatoes, they look at me and they say, these are incredible. What are these? And I look at them and I say, they're tomatoes. <laughs> and you know what I've learned? You know what I've learned? Hear me. Before I let you go, you, hear, you know what I've learned? Here's this. People don't hate tomatoes. They hate fake tomatoes. Friends, for the person who is walking away from religion because it hasn't satisfied their soul, there is a reason. The heart longs for God, not religion. And for the person who has walked away from religion, they may not be doing it because they're walking away from God. They may be doing it because they've been eating fake tomatoes their whole life. And finally, they're tasting the real thing. Friends, this morning, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. He's the hope of our soul. Let's give our life to follow him for the rest of the life. Can I, could you say amen? Amen. amen.